Last week, six Dr. Seuss books were self-banned by its publishers and are now delisted on eBay and other venues. Dr. Seuss? Really? Did you know the irony that at one point in our history, Fahrenheit 451, a book about censorship and book burning, itself was censored in America? Hey there, news peelers. Today is Friday, March 12th, 2021, and this is Adele with the Peel.News. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. And oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh, sometimes it offends, and sometimes it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of these stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. On March 2nd, which was Dr. Seuss's birthday, Dr. Seuss Enterprises announced that six Dr. Seuss books, which amount to 10% of its published books, will no longer be published or licensed because, and I quote, they portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. Soon after, eBay announced that it will delist those books from its marketplace as well. Almost as a knee-jerk reaction, I ran to our home library and discovered that we don't own any of those banned books, which I guess makes sense because those six books were not among Dr. Seuss's most popular. In fact, they accounted for very minimal sales. The irony is that these announcements actually increased the sale of Dr. Seuss classics. Two days after the books were delisted, discontinued, nine out of ten of Amazon's print bestsellers were Dr. Seuss books. Apparently, this is something that happens. Banned books experience a surge in sales. <laughs> maybe, maybe authors should use this as a sales tactic, self-ban their books and reintroduce them several years later. Joking aside, this news caused an outrage with the vociferous and voluble complaints of cancel culture strikes again from prominent conservatives. The next day, Minority leader Kevin McCarthy, who had complained that Democrats are banning Dr. Seuss, posted a video of himself reading Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham, which is not one of the six banned books, and which has a cartoon, by the way, on Netflix that my daughter reports, it's a really good show, Daddy. Politics aside, according to the New York Times, many people, ordinary people, were stunned that the books were self-banned. According to Brianna Keeler, a CNN anchor, the Dr. Seuss story got more attention than the news story of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. <laughs> By the way, incidentally, Ms. Keeler rhymed this news in Dr. Seuss style on TV. Pretty talented there, Brianna. 
we have a link to a video of her rhyming the news in the details of this podcast. Putting aside the political brouhaha, the decision won't affect other Dr. Seuss books, which random house books for young readers and booksellers such as Barnes & Noble will continue to carry. And even though Dr. Seuss's estate did a house cleaning of sorts here, many, including a Wall Street Journal children's book columnist, believe that this won't change anything at all, that the Dr. Seuss brand will remain under attack. As we reviewed the comments by the readership of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, it was obvious that some people were happy, very happy in fact, claiming that Dr. Seuss Enterprises has taken a step in the right direction. Others, however, including those who identified themselves as members of ethnic minorities, wondered if political correctness has gone too far. But what grabbed our attention, or shall I say, perturbed us, was all the references to book burning. But this was no such a case. There was no government or religious authority that sanctioned the burning of Dr. Seuss books. This was a corporate decision by Dr. Seuss Enterprises. It was an act of self-censoring, self-banning, self if you will. So this made us wonder, have other classic books in our history been censored or self-censored due to scrutiny and pressures of our social norms? Stay with me as I peel the history behind this news. Libraries used to chain books to library shelves and desks. This is because books were considered valuable, precious, and libraries didn't want them stolen or damaged. Most families didn't have any books, and if they had a book in addition to their family Bible, they read it over and over again, at times memorizing many of its passages verbatim. The early life of Abraham Lincoln is a good example of how rare books used to be especially outside urban areas and in poor families. Lincoln was a self-taught man who borrowed books and read them voraciously, including Shakespeare. He was a great storyteller partly because he read so many books over and over. In the team of rivals, the historian Ms. Doris Goodwin does a superb job of showing to what great lengths Lincoln went to obtain books and read them, and how he cherished those books. Nowadays, however, we treat books like they're dime a dozen. We have access to thousands of them online, and, and even new authors publish their books for free to promote their brand. The sad irony of the modern proliferation of books is the surge in their censorship. You may be yelling out your objection that you can't censor books in America. We have the First Amendment. Okay, I hear you. So let me read our First Amendment in its pertinent parts for you. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. So, in effect, the First Amendment inverts the Constitution's Article 1 regarding the powers of Congress. Article 1 states Congress shall have power to make all laws. The First Amendment limits that. The First Amendment, which is a part of our Bill of Rights, was sponsored and spearheaded by James Madison. It guarantees our freedom of speech and has become the pillar of our democracy. 
But the First Amendment has its limits. It applies to federal, state, and local governments, and also to public schools and universities. But it doesn't apply to non-government entities, including a private school. And it certainly doesn't apply to a private institution or a person censoring his or her own books. For example, according to the New York Times, Roald Dahl revised his famous book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, after he was slammed with charges of racism, including from the NAACP, because the minions that work in his chocolate factory were dark-skinned pygmies from Africa. So he changed them to Oompa Loompas from a fictional country called Lumpaland. But <laughs> that led to other complaints and charges that we won't get into here. The point is, the First Amendment doesn't protect the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press from social pressures that lead to self-censoring and self-banning of books by authors and publishers. This podcast is available on your device on Spotify, Apple, Google, and other podcast apps. You can also listen to us online on anger.fm. Subscribe and follow our podcast. And don't keep us all to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. As a kid, I was a big fan of Tintin. I owned 19 of his 20-plus books. And as an adult, I used to visit a store in Sausalito, California, out there by the water, and marvel at Tintin toys and little knickknacks that were way overpriced. I didn't buy any. But the point is, last week, I got a big surprise. I found out that his book, the Tintin books that I loved as a kid, had been accused of promoting colonialist and imperialist viewpoints and had been pulled from some libraries. Thankfully, our own local library still carries some of his books. So, in addition to the Tintin books and the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, we wondered how many other classic books that we all know, love, and have read in our culture have been banned or self-censored in some manner. To answer that question, we turn to a 1999 book by Nicholas Carolize and his colleagues titled 100 Banned Books, Censorship Histories of World Literature. <laughs> Don't worry here. We're not going to go over 100 books. This is not a six-hour podcast. Of the 100 books, we chose several classics that were suppressed for social reasons. Top of the list, the one that's a total irony, is a 1953 book by Ray Bradbury called Fahrenheit 451, a book about a society in which books are banned. Without telling the author, in 1967, the publisher self-censored the books and published them for high schools by deleting the words hell, damn, and abortion. Mr. Bradbury didn't even know about this until 1979, when a friend told him about it. After that, the author complained and the publisher reintroduced the books without any censorship. But that wasn't the end of the story of censorship of a book that is about book censorship. For example, in 1992, the words hell and damn were blacked out with a marker for middle school students in Irvine, California, which is in Orange County. After parents reported this to newspapers, 
the unedited versions of the books were reintroduced. Interestingly, there used to be a bookstore and coffee shop close to Irvine called Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> I wonder if these middle school teachers went to that coffee shop and bookstore with their black markers too. The second book that surprised us was Harper Lee's Pulitzer Prize winning 1960 book To Kill a Mockingbird. Really? Atticus Finch? Scout? Yeah, apparently up to 1999. It was among the 10 most frequently challenged books in America because, well, because of different reasons in different states. But basically, the book uses racial words and slurs. It was deemed as a filthy, trashy novel. And African-American parents protested the book because Tom Robinson, the African-American gentleman accused of a crime who was, who was defended by Atticus Finch, showed submissive behavior. And in 1985, after African-American parents and NAACP complained, it was changed from required reading to supplemental reading for junior high school kids in Arizona. Another one was The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. After its initial success when it was published in 1850, religious leaders went at it, calling it a dirty story fit for brothels. In 1961, Michigan parents called it pornographic and obscene. In 1977, Michigan parents went at it again, and this time a principal was on their side too. They objected to the storyline because to them, it was all about fornication and it was removed from school library and reading list. Challenges to the Scarlet Letter continued throughout the 1980s, including by parents and superintendents who hadn't even read the book, but they said it was about adultery, prostitution, and a womanizing preacher. Fifteen years ago, when I was visiting Italy, I bought a copy of the Scarlet Letter that was translated into Italian. I got this as a gift for my 20-year-old Italian cousin of Florence. She was a big fan of 19th century European literature, so I gave her The Scarlet Letter, a book that I had read in high school as an example of American literature from the 19th century. <laughs> I didn't know then, and find it really hard to believe now, that this book was the subject of bans and censorship. And here's another one that'll shock you. Anne Frank, The Diary of a Young Girl. Apparently this book has been censored multiple times. The big issues here were her curiosity of her own sexuality and that of her girlfriend and other sexual matters which were labeled as inappropriate and offensive in some school districts. Also, in the book, Anne criticizes a mother, which I must confess, I, I don't remember that at all from my own reading of the book. Anyway, the book was objected to by parents in Virginia because they believe that criticisms of a parent in literature undermines adult authority in real life. And there's more. Some parents objected to the book because of its discussion of mistreatment of the Jewish people. I, I don't even understand this one. Isn't that the whole purpose of reading Anne Frank's diary? I mean, her diary is, is, is for us to understand how Jews were persecuted and mistreated in continental Europe during World War II. Anyway, to top it off, in 1983, members of Alabama Textbook Commission considered banning the book from school because, and get ready for this one, because they said that the Anne Frank Diary is a real downer. <laughs> there, are, there are so many other books that are now classics that are listed in the book that I just mentioned. 
100 Banned Books, Censorship Histories of World Literature by Mr. Carol Eyes and his colleagues as having been suppressed by society, parents, and school boards. The kicker is, we've read so many of these books and even watched their movies. I hope you're enjoying this podcast, and if you are, please consider supporting the show for as little as 99 cents a month, which can be canceled anytime. Start your support by clicking the support link right here in the detailed description for this episode, or click the support button in our podcast profile on anchor.fm. Since 1982, an event called the Banned Books Week brings focus to books that have been the target of attacks by schools, parents, and libraries. You can find more about this event at bannedbooksweek.org. And this year's event is from September 26th to October 2nd. According to a 2016 article by The Atlantic, 52% of children's books that were challenged or banned between 2006 to 2016, so a 10-year period, were those that dealt with issues of equality and inclusivity. The article draws a contrast to books with violent or fantasy content, which, curiously, are rarely censored on a widespread fashion. Regarding fantasy, according to to the New York Times. In 2003, the American Library Association ranked Harry Potter books as one of the most challenged books in America. And that year, they burnt Harry Potter books in New Mexico because they supposedly promote witchcraft, occultism, and Satanism. We've been reading the Harry Potter books in our household. We just got to book seven. And I gotta tell you, it's just an imaginative story. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Anyway, almost in opposite to the reasons why Dr. Seuss books are self-banned, The Atlantic concludes that the practice of banning books is a conservative force in American society that actually prevents minority authors from publishing children's books. There's another recent trend that's parallel to what we just talked about. The removing of books or labeling of books because of their incorrect and or offensive portrayals of minority groups, such as racial or religious minorities. Apparently, some of these books are labeled by librarians, similar to labels for books that contain sexual or violent content. I've never seen labels on kids' books or perhaps just haven't paid attention. Regardless, according to one study, by 2016, 26% of elementary school librarians, 33% of middle school librarians, and 11% of high school librarians labeled their books. By the way, in 2010, the American Library Association said that it opposes labeling as a means of predisposing people's attitudes toward library materials and believe that labeling is similar to censorship. A 2018 online article by the Office for Intellectual Freedom of the American Library Association cites a 2008 survey of 653 American librarians in which many admitted to self-censoring out of fear of parental backlash. 87% avoid 
books due to sexual content. 61% because of language. 51% for violent content. 47% due to homosexuality. 34% relating to racism. And 16% for religious reasons. Stay with me as we get into the perspective. In 1936, Theodore Seuss Geisel, known to us as Dr. Seuss, rode rhymes on a ship during a sea storm on his way back home from Europe. A year later, in 1937, those stormy ocean rhymes were the inspiration for his first book, titled And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street, which is one of the six books that his estate will no longer publish or license. A 1958 New York Times article gives us a glimpse of Dr. Seuss closer to the launch of his career. According to that article from 63 years ago, which is titled The Significance of Dr. Seuss, adults used to buy his books for their own reading pleasure, and doctorate candidates reviewed them for their dissertations. As for Dr. Seuss himself, he described his beginner's book with the gusto of a person who had just discovered gold. He said, we don't expect to revolutionize teaching methods, but we do hope to make learning new words more fun than it is at the present. To ensure he used words that first graders can understand, he wrote The Cat in the Hat using only 236 words. And it was a success. According to the article, first graders have discovered that The Cat in the Hat has made learning to read not only possible, but pleasant. Interestingly, the article mentions something that resonates with us Americans today, in 2021, as we keep alert about social issues. The 1958 New York Times article says that in Dr. Seuss's books, characters rebel to correct the social disparity in the animal kingdom. So even then, social disparity was in the mind of Dr. Seuss and social injustice is in the minds of many of us today. So can we say there's much good in Dr. Seuss's books and intentions? Of course we can. We have seen examples of it in his works. That's why only six of his 60 books are self-banned by Dr. Seuss Enterprises. Regarding the six books that are banned, I wanted to share something with you from Thomas Jefferson, our third president. Quote, the firmness with which people have withstood the late abuses of the press, the discernment they have manifested between truth and falsehood, show that they may safely be trusted to hear everything, true and false, and to form a correct judgment between them. End quote. Although by the press, Mr. Jefferson really means the newspapers and pamphlets of his times, can't this statement also apply to books? Are we not smart enough to choose our own books, to interpret them for our kids, to tell them what's right and what's wrong, to exercise our own correct judgment? I consider myself a liberal-minded person, and so are most of my friends. Yet, we all have read Harry Potter, To Kill a Mockingbird, Fahrenheit 451, and Frank's Diary, and a host of others, including The Scarlet Letter and many Dr. Seuss books. 
None of these books have turned us into bigoted, vile, satanic people. And while we can no longer purchase six specific Dr. Seuss books because they are deemed offensive, we can, however, I repeat, we can purchase Hitler's Mein Kampf on Amazon, a book that offends millions and millions of Jewish people as well as hundreds of millions of non-Jewish people around the world. Mind you, we have not specifically identified the six doctor books that are self-banned, nor have we talked about their specific contents, because that's neither the point nor the perspective. The perspective is, what is the standard? What books stay and what books go? At what point as a society do we collectively say, oh gosh, no, 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 not this book? We'll close off with this. Last year, the publishing house Hatchet Book Group was forced to drop Woody Allen's memoir after his employees protested to his publication. I don't think anyone's a big fan of Mr. Allen's uh, personal life. He has been accused of pedophilia uh, and sexual assault, and he married his ex-wife's adopted daughter for crying out loud. I won't be reading his book, nor will any members of my family, and likely none of my friends will read it. But I bring it up for this reason. An article in bookriot.com points out something interesting. That Mr. Allen, who's worth tens of millions of dollars, can still self-publish his book and succeed. But what about other authors who are not wealthy, who are not well-connected? And to illustrate the issue here, I want to share what the author Stephen King tweeted. The hatchet decision to drop Woody Allen's book makes me very uneasy. It's not him. I don't give a damn about Mr. Allen. It's who gets muzzled next that worries me. If you know of any history that provides more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The beat and rhythm you've been hearing throughout this podcast and are hearing now is called The Success. It's by Keys of Moon Music. And the link and license for this music is provided in the text content for this episode. The names of books we mention are also there, along with their Amazon links. Of course, as always, we don't endorse any books or Amazon, and we don't have any financial relationships with either. We just think these books are pretty cool history, and you're welcome to read them if you wish. Also, for citation to specific pages of these books and other sources we use, you're welcome to visit the post for this episode on our website, thepeel.news. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at thepeel.news. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, 
This is Adele with Appeal.News.